The argument about morality is not the fact that we couldn't be good without God. You can't prove that anyone behaves any better if they refer this problem upward to a supreme dictator of a celestial kind. Okay, well let's go to the moral argument. It seems to me there that you've misunderstood the argument in that we're looking for an objective foundation for the moral values and duties that we want, we both, I think, want to affirm. It's not a matter of whether or not we can know what is right and wrong. So in my submission are our morals and ethics man-made. It's common to us as a matter of human solidarity to know without being told by revelation from Mount Sinai. I don't think you have to believe in Christianity to know right from wrong. I think people from the dawn of time have known right from wrong. It's called the moral law written on their hearts, even from a biblical perspective. That you've misunderstood the argument. You've misunderstood the argument. You've misunderstood the argument. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. And today we're going to be talking about the debating career of Christopher Hitchens. I want to say very early on that I approach this particular response video with a great amount of humility, a great amount of appreciation, and to some degree admiration for the work of Christopher Hitchens. Uh, it may seem odd to you that I would say something like that, and I'll hopefully unpack that as we move forward in just a moment. But um, I, I want to say, first of all, that I, I understand that to some people this may seem uh, unfair. Uh, perhaps even wrong, or at the very least, to be bad form, because here we have a man who has passed away, and even though he may have never felt inclined to do something like respond to a YouTube video from someone like me, at least he would have had that opportunity had he wanted to. And so uh, it's true that in this case, and only this case so far, in these response videos, I am responding to the words of someone who could not, um, who cannot speak back to me through this medium or in person. And so I understand that, I recognize that, and, um, and I grant that to a certain degree, that's not really fair. And so I want you to know that I go into it that way. But as an admirer of the work of Christopher Hitchens to some degree and in a very specific sense that I'll get to in a moment, I think that he would approve. I think and hope that he would approve. And the reason for that is because Christopher Hitchens was giving mouthpiece to bigger issues, issues that he represented. And really those ideas and some of those very words, the way that he worded them, have lived on in the work of many atheists since then, specifically many internet atheists and YouTube atheists. And he is a, a hero to many of those people. And so um, I think that in, in responding to him, I'm responding to what he represents and the, the sorts of ideas and approaches and responses that Christopher Hitchens represents and not to the man who I do have admiration for. To that end, I should say that I approach this with an understanding of the gravity of the work of this man and the influence that he has had. Uh, I appreciate and admire him as a rhetorician, someone who could turn a phrase in a very unique way, the kind of person that you wouldn't mind being slightly embarrassed by if he were to put you in your place because of the humor uh, that he uses and the skill with which he did those things. I look up to him in that respect. I would love to be the kind of speaker that he was, and I don't think I am. 
uh, to say the least. And so I, I admire that. I also admire his ability to be quick-witted and think on his feet and to have a certain level of understanding or knowledge of a very broad range of issues. And just as an influencer of culture and of people, I mean, it's still true that occasionally I'll be watching a television program and I'll hear something that undoubtedly came from the lips of Hitchens and has lived on through people repeating his philosophies and ideas after his death. So I admire that about the man. While I strongly disagree with and find blasphemous much of what he said, uh, I still appreciated his abilities. And I admire him and have a certain reverence for him because he's a person who uh, is made in the image of God. And so I go into this understanding those things. And in a certain respect, I think it would be fair to say that much of what I've done so far in creating these response videos, I'm getting close to 20 now of these kinds of videos, I think. Uh, most of what I've done has been leading up to this moment. I never knew whether I was going to do this video or not because I didn't, I didn't know if it would be appropriate. But I've decided that it is and it's necessary because of the impact he's had on the thinking of the other people that I've responded to in this series. So I understand all of that. And if you place comments like, it's a low blow, Braxton, the guy can't even respond, and things like that in the comments, I get it. And I'm fully acknowledging that right from the beginning. And I'm sure, I'm sure that if Christopher Hitchens were alive today and chose to respond to me, that he could certainly out-talk me. And uh, to many people, it may even appear as though he were to have won an exchange with someone like me. And I, I approach that with that understanding and that humility. But now it's time to move on a little bit and to discuss what it is, why it is that my admiration for him is reserved to those areas of rhetoric, ability, uh, likability, and those sorts of things, and not uh, to uh, the, the, the more content-specific issues of uh, debating issues about God and the nature of reality and metaphysics and things like this. And the reason for that is because while I, I think he is skilled and has influenced people like, say, my former debating partner, Matt Dillahunty, I would like to pay Matt the compliment of saying that I think that Matt Dillahunty, though obviously influenced by Hitchens and has referenced Hitchens in, in a, uh, you know, a regard where it seems clear to me that he admired Hitchens, uh, Matt Dillahunty was a far better thinker than uh, Christopher Hitchens was, in my opinion. Um, much of what Christopher Hitchens had to say was mere rhetoric and not really getting to the issues of the very rigorous argumentation that was brought. You know, there is a caricature of, of the Christian apologist that many atheists have in mind. And if this is not you as an atheist, because as I often say, we have incredible thinkers and incredible and fair and uh, gentlemen and ladies in our audience who are atheists who do not fall into categories like these. But for many, the characterization of indeed the caricature of Christians, apologists, is that we are like the, we are all like the creationist church visiting guy that you may be familiar with wearing the car, you know, khaki cargo vest and the tilly um, and, you know, bringing around these fossils and talking about dinosaurs. 
Uh, if that's you, I don't mean to offend you, but um, for a long time, when I got into apologetics, I thought all it had to do with was this creationism issue. And so I think we all get painted with a caricature that isn't quite fair. There are Christian apologists who are experts, who are um, PhDs in philosophy from uh, incredible Ivy League type schools. There are, uh, there are physicists who are highly decorated Christians, uh, who, uh, physicists who are Christians who uh, know what they're talking about. There are scientists, historians, philosophers, it, the list goes on. And so for that reason, that caricature doesn't hold true. And when Christopher Hitchens discussed things with those sorts of people, and he did, then what we found often was a clever way of dodging the issues that were um, being brought by his opponent, uh, either responding to a much simpler form of the argument, an argument that wasn't actually being brought, as we'll see in today's discussion, or just in an incredibly elegant manner, dancing away from those topics and back toward the evils done in the name of religion. And so, um, you know, this, this, is, uh, th- this is not something that I, I li- I'm glad to say, uh, but I can say this. I would have loved to have had discussion with Christopher Hitchens. Um, I would have sought that out, and I've never yet sought out a debating partner, but I would have sought out someone like Christopher Hitchens. Uh, because I think that the content of what he has to say is, in most cases, trivially easy to respond to. It's the rhetoric of the man that was, in some cases, seemingly impenetrable. And that is where his real strength was. Now, that's not to say that he wasn't an incredibly intelligent man. Um, But I think in a certain respect, some atheists today will grant this. People like Matt Dillahunty will say things like this, that you could could respond to the, the deeper content of what's being said. Or you could say the things that move the people who are listening to you. And Hitchens was aware of that, and he was an influencer for that reason. He was an influencer more than an educator for that reason. With those things said, we're going to begin... And we're actually going to begin with a discussion. I'm going to jump around a little bit here, but we're actually going to begin with a discussion that he had with Frank Turek. And uh, this was on September 9th of 2008, and it was at Virginia Commonwealth University. You can find this on Frank Turek's YouTube channel. Now, I'm not going to play Frank's comments very much. Uh, There's another debate that they had, and I will play a little bit of Frank's comments for context. But here what I'm actually going to do is go through Christopher Hitchens' opening statements and then his rebuttal. And I want us to make comments as we go. But don't tune out in the middle of this, because once I get done with his opening statements, I'm going to play a series of short clips from various debates that make a very important point about how Hitchens dealt with a particular argument that I think was emblematic about of how many people, many skeptics and atheists today, deal with this very argument and ones like it. And it's very, very telling. So, but we're going to begin now. And this debate was, um, uh, I'm not sure what the title, oh, the debate was, does God exist? So we're going to begin now um, and hear what Hitchens has to say. I almost never watch television and I'm, I'm, I'm usually glad that I don't, but now I'm glad that I sometimes I'm forced by my daughter to watch Family Guy. <laughs> because you may possibly have seen the moment when the chubby father comes down in the morning and looks at his cereal in the bowl, accepting your, some, one of your more sophisticated challenges, sir. Um, and he says, look at this, it says, woo, 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 woo. 
And his daughter says, those are Cheerios, Dan. <laughs> but I accept the ontological challenge. And I accept it in this way. The answer to the question which with, with which we confront ourselves tonight, or are confronted if you prefer, does God exist, is to me, yes, it does. It must do. It must do because it is so real to those who do believe in it. There are people of whom it may be said that for them, God does exist. I've become perfectly persuaded of this by now. Okay, now I don't want to step in now except to compliment Hitchens and just say, do you see the clever rhetorical skills there? Uh, what's amazing about this is when, when he begins with, yes, does God exist? Yes. We're hanging now on his words because we know that he's a debater brought in to, say, to doubt God's existence or to say that God does not or likely does not or there's no evidence for God's existence or whatever he's going to say, you know, as we're sitting here waiting. And when you say something like this, we're now on the edge of our seat. Just, just amazing, amazing. But he, he exists in the sense that he must exist because people perceive of him existing. And for them, it's real. I know. There is no form of persuasion that would make me assent to this proposition. Some of us are born. We're born too. Uh, now, I didn't even catch this the first time until I'm watching it back now. And I see that he's saying there is no form of persuasion that would bring me around to this. Do, do you see how his, his, the people that follow him, the people that came after him, guys like Dillahunty, they won't go so far as that. They'll say, maybe I would believe, but I'm not sure what it would take. I'm not aware of what the evidence would be that might convince me. But he says, I'm, I'm, it seems like what he's saying, unless I'm misunderstanding, I'm immune to this. I'm one of those people born not able to, um, to do that. Let's, let's, let's see what he says. In answer to Blaise Pascal's own problem, the one that made him write his pensée and address them to those who are so made that they cannot believe. Those of us to whom almost everything that Dr. Troik just said would be the mere equivalent of white noise. I suppose it's my job this evening to explain ontologically how that is the case. Perhaps I'll do it by force of example. Recently, very recently, in fact, uh, as little uh, uh, ago in time as last year, the Vatican announced that limbo, the destination of the un unbaptized child soul, no longer exists. There is no such place. Um, St. Augustine was in error, it appears in sending so many children, at least the souls of so many unbaptized children, to this destination for so long. Among the um, comments that I heard about this, among the mildest, actually, was that of a woman raised in the Catholic faith whose child had died before baptism could take place, who had for many years believed that that's where her unbaptized child had gone. And she said, they can't tell me that place doesn't exist. It's been as real to me as anything possibly could be for so long. They've no right to tell me now that this no longer exists. Ontologically, limbo exists for those who believe in it just as God does. I'm not here to deny that. Okay, now, now I, want, I want you to notice something. Now, by the way, that is a striking example that he uses. 
uh, I see it the same way he does. You know, it's it's a it's it's a surprising thing that um, even an existence that that might not seem to be a good one, if it becomes so ingrained in you that it's real, it's hard to shake that. And of course, indoctrination as as you know the caricature of us that we just indoctrinate our kids and all those sorts of things. I, I get the point that he's making, but I want you to notice something here. And by the way, if this is the first time you've ever watched one of my videos, I prefer to respond to the more rigorous argumentation. Go watch my video response to Matt Dillahunty, Cosmic Skeptic and Rationality Rules, or Bart Ehrman, or Dan Barker, and people like that. Um, I prefer those sorts of videos. Hitchens, for all of the legend that he has become and, and, and deserves for his skill as a debater, um, doesn't give me anything like that really to work with. He just doesn't. Uh, but what I want you to notice here is how many things he says in his opening statements that are Catholic specific. Now he knows that he's not debating a Catholic. I, I don't, I, you know, I don't even know that the majority of that crowd would be Catholic. The majority of the Christians in that crowd are Catholic. But most of this is aimed at Catholicism. Now it, it's true that there are, uh, there may be Catholics there, and there are a lot of Catholics in the world. But you know, one thing you learn early on as a speaker is that you contextualize what you're saying to the crowd that is listening to you speak and in a debate to your opponent who is standing across the stage from you. Hitchens knows this. Uh, we see him contextualize on other occasions. It seems to me, it strikes me as I'm watching this, that he's responding to some things that make for good illustrations, but if they're not, and I don't know that this is Hitchens' purpose, but if they're, not the, if they're not relevant to the crowd of people that you're speaking to overwhelmingly, and certainly not to the debater that you're debating here, and even not to the question under discussion, does God exist? Well, then what we have here is a straw man. It's responding to thinking that was not brought in opposition to you. And if not a straw man, certainly off target, but it will sound good to the crowd because you're knocking down something or pointing to something that is a bit silly or asinine, that is not even believed by the people in the crowd or the person to whom you're debating, overwhelmingly. Let's go on. But, but I want you to, as we go on, notice how many things are Catholic-specific. It's only a few decades now since the rival church, the Church of Rome, uh, the Church of England announced that really no one actually goes to hell. It could be that after you die, you're forbidden God's grace, but there's no real place of eternal, unending, infinite, torture and torment with which those who claimed the grace of God and the redemption of Jesus made a living for so many years. And how do they make their living? By lying to children. Think of it. Hundreds and hundreds of years of people proudly earning their keep by lying to children and terrifying them and saying... Okay, now hold on a second. Now, now okay, Church of England and the Catholic Church, still not the, not the majority of the people probably that he's speaking to, uh, certainly not Frank Turek. Uh, but, but notice this now. He said something about this idea that, that you know, these guys decided you know, something different about hell. There, there is a debate about the nature of hell, even among evangelicals, okay? So, um, so, but, and, and I have other videos where I talk about um, the fairness of hell or how do we believe in a just and loving God in, in spite of hell. And I would encourage you to go check out our two-part series on hell from last year where we cover all of the evangelical positions on that and look at the, all the biblical data that's relevant to that. Um, but, but here, I, I just want to say something. He's pointing out, he's saying... That, these pe that the people who had taught the existence of hell prior to this 
were lying to children about this. Uh, he's presuming to know something about the motives of everyone who taught this. You know, there are those people out there who always presume the worst motives. What we want to do when we're talking to someone, when we're responding to someone, as someone who makes response videos, I, I, my friend Leighton Flowers in the world of soteriology within Christianity, he does the same thing. We want to practice the principle of charity. And that is that we want to presume the most charitable reading of your opponents, the most charitable position that they might hold, unless we absolutely and until we absolutely know differently. And so there are some people who will listen to Christian apologists like myself and say, oh, he's just in it for the money. <laughs> if you only knew. Uh, he's just, he doesn't really believe this. He's just in it for the money. Um, or he's just doing this because it provides him a career or something like that. Um, and then there are other people who I really appreciate and, and the kind of atheists that I really enjoy talking with on my channel will say, I, you're really sincere. I believe that, you're, that you really believe this and I believe you want to help people and I believe that you really do care. But I just disagree with you about this. Thank you. Thank you for recognizing that. You're practicing the principle of charity. You're presuming the best motives in your opponent um, and responding to that unless you absolutely know differently. If someone teaches their children about hell, it may well be, and I would say overwhelmingly, in, for most of Christian history, for most Christians who have ever lived, who have taught their children about hell, it is because they believe that hell is a real place, and because they love their children, they don't want their children to go there. Now, you can disagree with that. You can think that that is some form of child abuse or indoctrination. Fine, you're entitled to those opinions. Nevertheless, what I want to push back on here is this idea that if someone believes something differently than me, and especially if it seems awful to me, then those people are just lying for whatever personal reason they may have. Well, I got news for you. As someone who has taught on hell, who teaches a course on the nature and doctrine of hell, I am not teaching it for any uh, immoral motivation except that I believe in the reality of hell. And when I teach it, I teach the various views. So this sort of thing is something we want to get away from, but what is it, what is it good for? It is good, strong rhetoric. Now, not only is it good rhetoric, I believe, I hear Hitchens through time and space saying this to me over the computer, and I believe he believes what he's saying. So in terms of a personal conviction, fine. But in terms of argumentation, in terms of reading your opponent in an uncharitable way, inexcusable. That because they could do that, they were morally superior to us. Reason, common Okay, now this, this is another thing, and this, this, this gets in a little bit to what we're going to look at between the opening statements and the rebuttal period, and that is this, the, the morality of it. Hitchens' uh, continued assertion that the Christian message is, or that the message of, of overwhelmingly of Christianity is, that Christians are better people morally than secularists or atheists. Now, whether that's true is something that could be discussed elsewhere. And there are many great debates, uh, one between Michael Jones and Matt Dillahunty on the subject of whether or not uh, religion is, uh, you know, is good for society or something like that and good for America and uh, uh, whether it's good for influencing the people to live moral lives. I think Michael Jones has another debate like that with uh, R.N. Raw, but um, but those are good for that, and there, there is something to be said there. But, but what I want to say here is the Christian message is that we are all sinners. We all do immoral things, and from a human perspective, some moral and some immoral things. 
atheists and Christians. We would expect to find some Christians doing things that are immoral, and we would expect to find atheists sometimes doing things that are moral. And both can do both. That is not the Christian message. We are not somehow morally superior. We worship a Savior who is morally superior, not to you, to all of us. And as a result of that, we want that Savior in our lives. We want the Holy Spirit as a great reformer in our lives uh, because we realize that we and all of mankind are broken. Sense, decency, ordinary decency rebels against this kind of mind-forged manacle however charmingly or humorously it's expressed, but hell exists in the... Now understand, he's just said something that is fascinating to me. The man who runs on rhetoric, again, who I like, partly because of that, who I appreciate and admire and think is, is a brilliant man, has just told us that these sorts of things, the things that he's in opposition to, should not be believed, no matter how, I don't know what he said, beautifully or persuasively or humorously they are presented. And we could say the same, about Hitchens' arguments back to him. But if we peeled away that rhetoric, I fear there wouldn't be much left. The minds of several people I've spoken to just today on this campus in the, in the intervals of, uh, of other conversations, uh, for them it's real, and I don't say that it's not. But what I want to show is that it can, if it does exist, nonetheless be abolished, like many other mind-forged manacles and man-made tyrannies that confront us. And in fact, that this belief in a supreme and unalterable tyranny is the oldest enemy of our species, the oldest enemy of our intellectual freedom and our moral autonomy, and must be met, and must be challenged, and must... Okay, now, now he's going to say something great here in just a moment that we really need to capitalize on because it's going to set up the rest of his discussion. But notice, now he's brought it for a moment away from Catholicism, away from the Church of England, and he has brought it now to the people that are on this campus who he's talked to who believe in hell and that, that, that this idea and this idea in this tyranny of this, this dictator God, as he said on other occasions, must be met because it is, it is the uh, enemy of intellectualism and has been for so long. Uh, so we look now to Hitchens to free us from those chains. Must be overthrown. I want to argue for nothing less than that. Okay, so he's telling us that tonight I want to argue against that idea. I want to respond to this idea that has plagued intellectualism in the history of mankind. So what we should expect next is we should expect him to now dismantle the best reasons to believe that, that God exists. And if he's focusing his guns on Christianity, despite the debate topic, that Christian theism is false. Of course, if he were to knock down God's existence, he would in turn knock down Christian theism. And we will expect to now see that argumentation that delivers such a death blow to this position. We'll expect to see premises and conclusions. And if not premises and conclusions, we should still expect to see a powerful, um, logical explanation of why it cannot be true or should not be believed. So let's see if that's what we get. It's actually rather wonderful, isn't it? The uh, religious authorities who used to say they were infallible say, just take the last pope, just the last. I know I'm not talking with the Catholic apologist this evening, but nonetheless, the church, when people say the church, they know which one they mean. They mean the one in Rome, the one where when Stephen Hawking was invited and was asked at the conference on the church and science, is there anything he'd like to see in Rome while he was there? He said he'd like to see the records of the trial of Galileo. Um, don't please be invoking Mr. Hawking, by the way, as if he was a deist. 
Um, the last pope, just in the last decade of his tenure, apologized. He said, we were wrong about the Jewish question. We probably shouldn't have said for so long the Jews were responsible for the murder of Christ. We were probably wrong in forced conversion of the peoples of the, the Indies, as they were thought of, the, the Isthmus and the southern cone of our hemisphere. We were certainly wrong. We owe an apology to the Muslims for the atrocities of the Crusades. We owe an apology to the Eastern Orthodox churches uh, for the incredible butchery to which they, our fellow Christians, were subjected by us, the Roman Catholic Church. And we probably owe an apology to the Protestants for saying and so many awful things about them and torturing and burning and killing them too. So having now said we were completely wrong and completely cruel and completely sadistic and completely violent and retarded human civilization for that many centuries in that many countries and continents, we're quit. And now we can go back to being infallible all over again. There are, the, there are people who on faith will accept being spoken to in that tone of voice and in that way. But I, ladies and gentlemen, am not one of them. What a great, I mean, th really, this is a great response, perhaps, to Roman Catholicism. To Roman Catholicism. I mean, perhaps if I was a Catholic apologist, I would see some problems and could respond thusly, but I'm not here to defend mere Roman Catholicism. I'm here to defend the question of God's existence or the existence of the Christian God. I'm a Christian apologist. I'm not a Christian Roman Catholic apologist. And if you say, well, that's you, but you're not the target of Hitchens' comments there. The target of Hitchens' comments should be anyone who believes in God because the question of the debate is, does God exist? And if not that, his response should be toward Frank Turek. But Frank Turek is also not a Roman Catholic. Very odd this is. His, almost the entirety of his opening statements is an attack, an assault on Roman Catholicism. It's fascinating. And I don't think there's any form of persuasion that should allow you to be spoken to as if you were serfs or slaves either. Proceeding with the ontology with which I began, the Aquinas point, that if, if you can conceive of something, whether it's a ghost, uh, a phantasm, uh, or a deity, if you can conceive of something, it is in some sense real if it's real in your mind. Uh, and showing with the obvious fallacy that has always attended that, is it nonetheless possible for an atheist to say, a proclaimed atheist to say, as I do, um, proclaim myself to be, that God positively can be said not to exist? No. It's a very common misunderstanding about my fraternity sorority. I'll just take a moment to clear it up. The atheist says, no persuasive argument for the existence of God has ever been advanced or adduced without convincing rebuttal, that no argument in favor stands or has been found to stand the test of argument and evidence. We cannot say that we know that there could be no such entity. Among other things, we are too reverent of the extraordinary time of discovery, <coughs> innovation, pushing back of the frontiers of knowledge and, and understanding that's taken place just in our own time. To okay, now, now this is a little bit different than the way he put it previously, right? But um, let's think about this for just a moment. Uh, there is no argument that has been formed to show that God exists that has not been properly rebutted. Do we hear that today? 
Do we hear that over the waves of YouTube? Do we hear that all the time? The Kalam has been debunked. These design arguments have been debunked. These moral arguments have been debunked. Do the, the resurrection case has been debunked. But I seldom get a compelling response to these arguments. I get the assertion that they've been debunked. And then someone points me to a video uh, from someone, and then I go and respond to that video. But, I, but seldom do the people who tell me that it's been debunked, do they ever offer a debunking. Even in debate, it is now not uncommon for atheists in debate to say that these things have been debunked, to say that they've been uh, defeated over and over and over again without themselves showing how that has happened. Where have these arguments been debunked? Point me to where they've been debunked. Because every time I've seen the quote-unquote debunking, it's already been dealt with. And if you think that now I am making the mistake of saying these things have stood the test of time. It's if you're the one claiming that they have been debunked, then you bear the burden of proof to show me how they've been debunked. Don't confuse with this with who has the burden of proof in general. Fine, perhaps the theist who is claiming that God does exist and the atheist is taking the negative position there or the middle position of I don't know. Fine, you may not bear the burden of proof there. That's another discussion. But if you're going to claim they have been debunked, then you bear the burden of proof to show me where. And I've, of course, defended these arguments against the quote-unquote debunkings all over this channel. So this is something we still hear today that echoes past time from Hitchens, who is now saying they've been debunked without offering his own debunking. To make any such remark. But by saying this, we say, I think, quite a lot. There is no valid or coherent or consistent argument that would not work if it comes to that for the existence of any god. Now, I notice it was a, by a slight work of illusion, a bit of uh, tap dancing there, that Dr. Turek went from uh, being a deist to a theist, and then from being a theist to a Christian. Now, I know he does not believe in the existence of the sun god Ra. I'm practically certain he doesn't believe in the existence of Zeus. If you'll pick up a copy of my Portable Atheist, a selection of the finest writings by non-believers uh, down the years, and just turn to the three pages where Mencken, H.L. Mencken, lists the easiest to name 3,000 gods that used to be worshipped and that no longer are held to exist by anybody, uh, you'll spare me the trouble of reading them out. Um, no, he thinks he do doesn't just know, Dr. Turek, that there is a god. He knows which one is the right one from a potentially infinite list, actually from a list that's as long as the number of people there are. Now, I want to stop real quick because we're going to get far away from the point. And I'm going to forget it. <laughs> but the point that I want to make is now he's pointed out. Uh, now, notice th these arguments that are brought for God could work for any God. Well, they couldn't work for any God, but they could work for other gods besides just the God of Christianity. And I'm talking here about the theistic arguments. Remember, the debate question here is, does God exist? Not does the Christian God exist? But it sounds like Turek may have worked in some resurrection stuff. I, I didn't watch his part of the video. Um, but I want to point out here, this is so common. This is so common. It was brought up in um, my debate with Matt Dillahunty. It gets brought up in every video that I do like this. I want to clarify the theistic arguments, the arguments for God's existence. Yes, they give you theism. They give you that some God exists that is spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful, exceedingly wise, and with a moral argument uh, and is interested in moral goods, right? 
um, moral v- values and duties, uh, right? He's a moral God. He's a good God. They get you those things. They do not get you to Christianity. That's why what we do is then follow them with a, a resurrection case to show that Christianity is true. But if you are an atheist listening, um, I hope that you'll listen to me, and, and I hope you'll take this on board. But if your comment is that argument doesn't get you to Christianity, at best it would just show that God exists. Right. That's what we're trying to do with a theistic argument. The resurrection case follows that to give you the Christian God. Uh, or have ever been in the human species, because if you ever argue with a theist or a deist, as I do every day, you'll find they all believe in a God of their very own. Indeed, they often say a personal God. Indeed, they often say a personal Savior. So out of, out of what are we reifying a concept that applies to all of us? Okay, now we hear this too with, with common modern YouTube atheists is we'll hear all the time the, the, the refrain that, well, you know, there are so many different understandings of God in the world. And even among Christians, there are so many different ones. Matt Dillahunty says, if you want to find out what's wrong with the people at First Baptist, just go to Second Baptist and all those sorts of things. That is just a smokescreen. I'm sure it makes sense to Hitchens. I'm sure it makes sense to Dillahunty. But here's the thing. What all Christians everywhere that are actually, in any sense, really Christians, have always believed, is that God exists and God raised Jesus from the dead. Um, There are other very important issues of doctrine there, but if God exists and God raised Jesus from the dead, Christianity is true, period, no matter what you want to say about anything else. Out of nothing but wish-thinking and nonsense and fear and ignorance and above all, and I'm not quitting on this point, servility. It's just wishful thinking and, and, and being afraid. Okay, well, uh, yes, I am. I, if I were a, not a Christian, I'd be very fearful of the concept of hell. By the way, it is eternally shocking to me that there are atheists out there, specifically Pine Creek, who goes around saying, you know, these Christians don't ever want to say that the best reason to be a Christian is so that you don't go to hell. Um, theologically speaking, and in terms of what's I understand now as a Christian for 30 years is most important. The best reason to be a Christian is to love your God and enjoy him forever, to do what he wants you to do because he's your creator and to know him because that is the greatest purpose that we have. And then to be used by him to do his will. Yes, a servant, servitude. I'm happy to grant that on a practical level or initially. Yeah, it's a darn good reason to be a Christian so that you don't go to hell. (laughs) I think that's fine. So is fear a part of it initially, perhaps? But you know what? There are a lot of good things that we do in this world that fear is a relevant part of that. Uh, The reason that we most of us are not dead because of snake bites is because of a healthy fear. The reason that we do not fall off cliffs is because of a healthy fear. But that doesn't mean that that's the only reason. This doesn't mean it's the only thing that's important there. Wish fulfillment. Yes, uh, I do hope that it's all true. I claim to know that it's true and believe that it's true. But yeah, I do. But you know what? That isn't the whole story. That's not the primary re- That's not the reason that I believe. And you know what else? There are a lot of people who wish for things that end up happening to be true. I wish that I would get married one day to a beautiful woman. And I did. <laughs> Many people wish to marry wealthy people. I didn't. But some people who wish that did. So wish fulfillment as a reason to believe, it doesn't get you there. But the fact that there is some wishing involved and some fear involved, does that invalidate the claim? By no means. Everyone in this room is an atheist. Everyone can name a God in which they do not believe. Let them advance the case that the one in which they believe is the superior one. 
Let Dr. Torek be the first person I've ever met to do that convincingly this evening, and I will show him due respect. I don't think the task can actually be undertaken. Okay, this, this is a common refrain that we hear all the time that everyone here is an atheist with respect to all these other gods. Um, and often people will say, uh, as an atheist, I'm just an atheist with respect to one more god than you are. Okay, fine. But uh, Tyler Vela over at The Mentionables um, said something like this. This is my paraphrase of what he said on Facebook recently. I thought it was fantastic. Um, a bachelor could say to a married person, a monogamous married person, you're a bachelor with respect to all the other four billion women on the planet. I'm just a bachelor with respect to one more woman than you. This would be a meaningless statement, right? Okay, but I am married, and so I'm not a bachelor, right? <laughs> and in the same way, we can look at that and say, well, to be an atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God, right? Okay, well, guess what? Um, I am uh, not an atheist because I do believe in a God. So what's the point? The point can only be that you find problems with all these other gods, but not the one that you worship. Precisely right. That's why I'm a Christian and not a Buddhist or a Muslim or whatever else. Okay. Now, the same tap dancing hopes you will not notice that deism and theism are two quite different things. The deist argument says that there is so much order apparent in nature and in the cosmos and in the universe that it might be unwise to assume that such order has no one interested in ordering or designing it. That, that, that assumption might be an un might be an unsafe one. The philosopher Paley in his uh, natural theology said design implies a designer. He came up with the very famous image of the watch. If you come across the watch, if you're a primitive tribes person in the Sahara, you may not know what it's for, but you know that it's not a rock or a vegetable. You know it has a purpose, and someone made it that way. Um, until quite recently, that was the default position of most intelligent people, including Mr. Jefferson who, despite his intermittent atheism, in my judgment, was a deist. I'm so sorry, was a deist, was a deist. He would debate with, um, among the many skills he had, was a very advanced uh, level of paleontology. He would debate with the greatest paleontologist of his time, the Count de Buffon. How, how comes it, how can it be, that we find seashells so high on the mountains of Virginia? How can this be? Not even the most intelligent people of that day, and it's very recent, it's an instant in historical time, had any idea how that could be. There isn't anyone in this room who wasn't educated and brought up knowing exactly how that is. It's just a shame that Jefferson and many other intelligent and humane and well-educated literate people just couldn't see that far. He wasn't to know, though Darwin was born in his day, on the same day, Actually, in 1809, as Abraham Lincoln, the very same day, the two great emancipators, Darwin being, in my judgment, the greater of the two. Now we know, we know this proposition to be true, the proposition that was ridiculed so, uh, so uh, pathetically, I have to say, I thought, by Dr. Torek. There is no explanation for the origins of our species, for the origins of our cosmos, for the origins of our globe itself. There is not one explanation left which requires the existence of a deus ex machina. In every case, we have a better or sufficient explanation. I think that assertion of mine will stand any challenge this evening. I'm looking forward to hearing uh, some more of them. 
Of course, John. Okay, now notice, notice he just brushed aside um, arguments from cosmology because no. What I hear from atheists all the time is that we don't know <laughs> how that works and that there is no, we don't, we don't yet have, but we will have a naturalistic explanation that satisfies us, sort of naturalism of the gaps, right? Where you don't have an answer. We have um, a colloquial understanding of faith that one day naturalism will give us the answer, right? Okay, fine. Fair enough. Um, uh, but it's, but no, no real uh, attempts to deal with the Kalam cosmological argument or arguments like it or contingency arguments or anything. Uh, no attempt to deal with design arguments that are aimed at precisely this issue. No attempt to deal with abiogenesis that we still don't have an explanation for. And he claims here, and understand, you say, well, yeah, but, but that's different than saying that God is the explanation. Fine. But he claims that with all these things, there's a perfectly reasonable naturalistic explanation. If I heard him correctly, then what is it? What is this explanation? You see, he has impressed us with his knowledge of historical figures and on what days they were born. But he didn't even go so far as to tell us why those seashells are on top of those mountains. He references that these things have all been answered, all been debunked, but we get no answer. And I mean no snark in this, because again, I love this man. If he were here today, I would try to reach him for Christ. I would talk with him if I could. I, um, I admire his accomplishments, but we're getting nothing in terms of real content from him. And these are his opening statements. Darwin used creationist images. He actually set out uh, to um, vindicate uh, Paley's theology. thought he could do it by his study, taxonomical study of nature. Um, Einstein used uh, God images when he spoke uh, of the extraordinary majesty of the cosmos. It's, it's, it's in us. It's in our vocabulary. It's hardwired in us, you might almost say, to use images of awe-inspiring, um, godly, uh, Mozartian, you might, you might say, or even Shakespearean images when talking about these things. But when we come down to the actual analysis of them, we find that we don't need the prime mover at all, and that most of the prime mover explanations, if not all of them, have been positively misleading. So that the deist may propose a designer, and I may not be able to show you convincingly that there could be no such person, but the theist has all their work still ahead of them. From this designer, how do we get to the designer who answers prayers? Did you hear a thing? I mean, just a phrase, even an implication, even a suggestion from anything my opponent said, that you could, by an argument from design, prove answered prayers? or prove that someone born of a virgin was therefore the son of a god, or could prove that resurrections occur, and that by uh, people being tortured to death thousands of years ago, we are now redeemed, that we are vicariously forgiven our own offenses by human sacrifice? How does deism help you to that? Okay, so again, I want to reiterate to those of you who are new to this that the theistic arguments, as would be brought in a does God exist debate, are not designed to get you to Christian theism, They're to get you to God's existence. If we were to show Christian theism, which is not the topic of this debate, we would follow that with a resurrection case. Now, can we demonstrate historically that Jesus was born of a virgin? Uh, not in the way that we seek out this historical evidence and can show that the resurrection of Jesus is the most plausible explanation. We don't claim to. We claim to show, in most cases, classical apologists, people like Frank Turek, 
if I understand his method correctly, and like myself, and like William Lane Craig, would show that God exists and God raised Jesus from the dead. From there, then we would reason further on other grounds to get you to the reliability of Scripture and things like that. But at this point, he's conflating theistic arguments with the whole ball of wax, which at this point, he should have debated enough. Well, I'm not sure at what, how many debates he had had at this point, but when, when Hitchens debates as many Christians as he did, he should have at some point come around to the understanding that there are different methodologies, and I actually know that he does this because I think in his debate with William Lane Craig, he mentions presuppositionalism and uh, the classical approach and things like that. Maybe it was Douglas Wilson that he talks about that. But he understands the different approaches, so he should know that the theistic arguments are not designed to get you to Christian theism, but to get you to theism, and then you get to Christian theism with further argumentation like the resurrection case. To that, it doesn't. It quite simply doesn't and cannot and the attempt to build from one to the other is a conjuring trick of a very vulgar, I think, kind. We live in the childhood of our species, so when Stephen Hawking says that if we could understand the event horizon that surrounds the black hole, we would, in some sense, know the mind of God, he proves that our vocabulary is still that of our infancy. He makes no concession to the idea of a theist or theocratic uh, dispensation. I'd better ask now how I'm doing for time. Good. I'm not sure I'm going to need all that. Um, but I like to try and reply and fight on my feet when I can. And I made some notes about, about what uh, Dr. Turek had said, and I feel that uh, they were challenges to me that I would be um, ignoble if I didn't uh, respond to. Um, the first, and I thought the most, frankly, the most egregious, was this. I find it extraordinary that it can be said on a university campus in this year of grace, that, uh, that without God, humans are capable of doing anything. That there is no moral restraint upon us if we don't concur in the idea that we are the property and uh, creation of a supreme being. Uh, I'm making the assumption that all of you check in every now and then with some kind of news outlet and have a view of what's going on the rest of the world. Isn't it as plain as could be that those who commit the most callous, the most cruel, the most brutal, the most indiscriminate atrocities of all do so precisely because they believe they have divine permission? Shall I answer my own question? Shall I insult you by adding more? Who can't think of an example of this kind? Let me put the question in another form that I've put in now. Uh, every forum from YouTube to the C-SPAN, to the wireless, to the print, to the radio, to the television, and in, in, innumerable forums to those who say that without God there can be no morality. You are to ask yourself two questions. You are to name a moral action undertaken, or a moral and ethical statement made by a believer. I dare say you can do it. You are then to say that you can not imagine a non-believer making this moral statement or undertaking this moral action. Can you think, can you now think, can any of you think, you have, don't have to answer now, you have all night, and, and you have my email. <laughs> and I've done this with everyone from the Archbishop of Canterbury to even lower people. Um, <laughs> you name me the ethical and moral actional statement that a believer can make and an unbeliever cannot, and there's a prize. I'll tell you that, about that later. Now there's a second question. Think of something wicked that only a believer would be likely to do. 
or something wicked that only a believer would be likely to say. You've already thought of it. The suicide bombing community is entirely religious. The genital mutilation community is entirely religious. I wouldn't say that the <coughs> child abuse community is entirely religious. I wouldn't. But it's bidding to be entirely religious. It operates on the old Latin slogan, no child's behind left. <laughs> how dare anybody, how dare anyone who speaks for religion uh, say of us, the secular and the non-believers, that we are the immoral ones. It is itself a wicked thing to say. Now, uh, first of all, as for Hitchens' test that he says in every debate about thinking of something that could be done only in the name of religion, some evil, that, um, and that there wouldn't be uh, an atheist or somebody wouldn't do that, and then a good that is done in the name of religion that um, an atheist couldn't also do. Well, this, first of all, completely irrelevant. I'm sorry, I know this is a favorite for some, and I hate to take the air out of the balloon, but the fact is this is completely irrelevant to what is true. Of course, there are immense evils done in the name of God, but there are immense evils that have been done in the name of atheistic regimes. I know that gets people's blood boiling, but I'm sorry, no amount of acrobatics can get out of that. That's just the way it is. And I don't mean to be unkind to you, but of course, you know what, you know what, what, what is the greater likelihood here? Is the greater likelihood that somehow atheists are insulated from such atrocities? Or given that atheists have committed those atrocities, that this is just something that's true about human beings. Religious or not religious, human beings can commit these things, can do horrible things. Yeah, I think that's probably the most reasonable explanation. And I think if you don't think so, I'm not sure you're being completely honest with yourself. It speaks to the human experience, not to some difference between atheists and religious people. Because when we look at the track record, as Hitchens loves to do, and you can check out his debates with Dinesh D'Souza to see this borne out, um, the track record is awful for atheistic regimes. Now, people will often say, yeah, but those things weren't done in the name of atheism. They were done by atheists. And the things done in, by Christians were done by, Christ, by people claiming to be Christians, right? And you say, no true Scotsman fall fallacy. Darn right. People that do those wicked things are showing an absence of fruit, which is the very internal test given by the Bible for what a Christian, how you can tell when someone is a Christian. If there is no fruit, they're not a Christian. Uh, no true Scotsman. You know what? There are some people who are not Scotsmen, and it would be perfectly fine for a Scotsman to say, that guy is not a Scotsman, right? Uh, it's only a fallacy in certain circumstances. So what I want you to, what I want you to recognize here is that this is completely irrelevant to this situation, but it leads us in to the point we're almost at, the point where we're going to find that Christopher Hitchens misunderstands moral arguments as they are most often brought, and always the, the, the versions of them that are brought by his debate opponents. He misunderstands them over and over and over again. Yes, I'm going to demonstrate this to you. And, uh, well, we'll just wait till we get there. It's self and absolutely indefensible thing to say. No, the decapitation on the bus is going to be done by someone who thinks God is telling him to do it. Smerdyakov is actually the stupidest character in Dostoevsky's novel. He's the one who makes I can certainly think of evils carried out by people who have been told that they are mere animals and that morality is subjective. I can certainly think of atrocities done by such people. But again, this isn't really what this is about, is it? It's not about which people did what thing. It's about what's true and what isn't. And people that have the truth can do things that are not consistent with that truth.
makes this proposition. Everyone has to understand, everyone has to understand that it is those who feel that the divine is prompting them, who feel they're permitted anything and everything. And it is those who are the leading, most salient, most violent, most vicious opponents of the values and civilization that Thomas Jefferson uh, stood for and promulgated. Uh, just on the question of fine-tuning, I have a number of responses. We have to postpone some of the, 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 the naturalistic questions for, for later, when I know they'll come up again. Um, Fantastic. Fantastic. We're being told that when he comes up to the podium the next time for his rebuttal, we're going we're gonna to hear this in-depth response to the fine-tuning argument. That, that'd be fantastic. You mentioned Edwin Hubble and the way that he saw the red light shift and uh, saw that the universe was not just expanding, but, the, the, but expanding very fast, away from itself, that the Big Bang had not stopped. Uh, Lawrence Krauss, great physicist, probably the next Nobel Prize winner, has uh, noticed that most of people's assumption was wrong that though this expansion was taking place, it was thought, the rate of speed of the expansion must surely be declining. People still think in Newtonian terms in this way. No, says Krauss, he's pointed it out and now it's agreed by all. No, the Hubble rate of red light shift is increasing. The universe is dissipating itself at high speed and the speed is getting greater. What does this mean? Well, it answers the question of why is there something instead of nothing? Because now we have something. We're all here because there's something. And nothing is coming right for us. Very soon, a physicist wouldn't be able to tell the Big Bang had ever taken place. So far sprung apart will the whole system be. And meanwhile, look in the sky at night, and you can see the Andromeda galaxy headed straight for ours on a direct collision course. Who designed that? Who made it certain that every other planet in our solar system is either too hot or too cold to support life, as is most of our own planet, and that in just one tiny, irrelevant solar system already condemned to heat, death, and implosion. Some design wouldn't. Okay, that's a famous Hitchens quote, some design. First of all, do you notice that he, I'm, he's got, I'm gonna answer here, why is there something rather than nothing? I'll tell you why. Because there's something here right now. But there's going to be nothing because the, you know, the expansion is speeding up and the Andromeda galaxy and all these things. That was not an answer to the question of why is there something rather than nothing. But in Hitchens' mind, at the very least rhetorically, it was. What? How is that an answer to the question of why is there something rather than nothing? It's a tautology. There's something because there's something is all I got out of that. There wasn't a response. And as for this ending that's coming, of course, this would get into our Christian eschatological beliefs, made at a time when people, as he wants to point out, primitive as he paints them, were not aware of what he's describing now that's coming from modern science. But in spite of not being aware, we have this revelation that there's going to be this eschatology, and there's going to be things happen, and there's going to be, um, the, the God is going to redeem and resurrect this fallen world. So yeah, it, it's not a debate about, the, about Christianity. But Christianity had something to say about that long before we knew such a thing was going on. Very interesting that. As for some design, pointing out that we have a degradation of the design is not an example. Uh, is not, it's not to show that there is no design. As I said in my video for, in response to Daniel Alvarez, um, I said that, that when I debated Alvarez, I, uh, I, I got up there and, and said, um, 
and pointed out that in Cuba, they had this thing called the Futingo, which was uh, uh, automatic transmission automobile. And the idea is called a foot and go, Futingo, because you could just, you didn't have to change gears. And it was a horribly designed car. Everyone jokes about it, that it's a horribly designed car, but guess what? Nobody ever says, nobody designed this car. Because something horribly designed from your perspective is still designed, right? Some design, as he wants to sarcastically put it, is still designed. This is not a response to the design argument, and I fear we won't get one. You say. But these are just the paltering minor objections that I have to the theistic worldview. The main one is the one with which I began. Religion, theism, not deism, theism I, un I underline. Theism says that all our manifold problems, what is the good, how shall we live it, how shall we know it? How to explain suffering? How to, how to confront the possibility of our own, perhaps, molecular irrelevance? All these questions uh, that must disturb and detain us all can be solved by referring them upward to a totalitarian judgment, to an absolutist monarch. The other thing that the Virginia Statute on Religious Freedom was supposed to uh, rebut, repudiate, disown, yes, uh, I promise you, 30 seconds. Uh, Wait, that's your, that's your biggest response? You're circling back to what you said at the beginning, that Christians say the answer is with God, and that's your response? That, I mean, maybe it's a response, but it's not a compelling one. The only thing that could be intended there is mockery, but anyone in the audience, I would hope even the atheists are saying, well, it's the very thing we're here to talk about tonight. Is that the case? There is no totalitarian solution to these problems. There is no big brother in the sky. It is a horrible idea that there is somebody who owns us, who makes us, who supervises us, waking and sleeping, who knows our thoughts, who can convict us of thought crime, who can do thought crime just for what we think, uh, who can judge us while we sleep for things that might occur to us in our dreams, who can create us sick, as apparently we are, and then order us on pain of eternal torture to be well again. Th to demand this, to wish this to be true, is to wish to live as an abject slave. It is a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing, in my submission, that we now have enough information, enough intelligence, and I hope enough intellectual and moral courage to say that this ghastly proposition is founded on a lie and to celebrate that fact. And I invite you to join me in doing so. Thank you. Now, some of what Hitchens said there was theologically incorrect um, on any understanding of Christianity. However, uh, the fact of the matter is, even if it were all right, what Hitchens is saying is, I don't like this. It's a horrible idea. It's a horrible concept. So Hitchens is telling us, in his subjective opinion, it's not good. Therefore, it shouldn't be believed. How does that follow? Cancer is a horrible reality. It's a horrible notion. It's a horrible concept. It doesn't mean that it's not true. Now, I don't think that the belief in God is a horrible thing. Uh, but even if his opinion is, is that it is, even if it was everyone's opinion that it was, it would not speak to the truth of the matter. It, it would not speak to whether it's really the nature of reality. You've got to deal with that. And then in the end, we get the moral thing is that we should reject this, a morality that Hitchens cannot sustain because his morality is subjective, just like his opinions about the quality of our God. There was nothing 
in that opening statement that should lead someone to reject anything except perhaps aspects of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, I don't say that to have a laugh. I don't say that to joke. I say that out of, out of respect for Hitchens, I'm taking his words seriously as I think he would have me to do. That was a vacuous opening statement in terms of evidence or response to evidence. Now, at this point, we're going we're gonna to come back to this in a moment. But you remember how I said that with morality, he misunderstood the moral, moral argument again and again and again. I'm going to demonstrate that to you now very quickly. And what I want you to see here is that Hitchens was corrected. Hitchens often framed the, the argument as given by most theists, all the theists, so far as I know, that he debated. He framed it as though only, that Christians do good things and atheists don't, can't be as moral as Christians are because they don't believe in God, as if that was the moral argument. When the moral arguments or a moral argument that Hitchens was confronted with again and again and again was the idea that it's not that atheists can't do good things or that Christians can't do bad things or that some atheists are not from a human perspective morally superior to some people claiming to be Christians or whatever. The fact of the matter is it's that, yes, we all do have an awareness of morality, and yet there is no objective basis for it if you don't have a God. Uh, you have no objective grounding for that morality. It is all just subjective. It becomes a matter of opinion what is right and wrong. Because if there is no God, then says who that it's right or wrong? Well, says a group of people. Okay, it's the opinion of a group of people. Even if a community, in my community, it is against the law to buy and sell marijuana for recreational purposes. So we could say that it's wrong according to the people in, in my community. But if you go to another community, it is not wrong and it is legal to buy and sell marijuana for recreational purposes, provided that you have the right certification or whatever else. That means that it's still subjective. It's the opinion of this group of people as opposed to that group of people. As is often said, if Hitler had been successful in eradicating anyone who thought differently and so that the vast majority of the world and perhaps everyone on the world thought that it was a good thing to kill Jews, if everyone believed that way, it would still be wrong. And everyone knows that it would still be wrong. But on this atheism, you would have to believe that it was subject. It's still, we think that it's wrong. We don't like it. But it's not objectively wrong because it's just the opinion of the human race as opposed to others. If you're okay with that, uh, I, listen, I think you need to study this moral stuff more deeply. I think I go into it in depth in my response to Sam Harris or perhaps my response to Jacqueline Glenn. So I encourage you to go look there. But he can't even sustain his own opening statement. And when you cannot sustain your own opening statement, but your opening statement sounded really clever, then you're dealing with mere rhetoric. But I'm going to show you now this, um, what I, this is what I want you to see now. Here is a debate with uh, Dinesh D'Souza. Listen to this exchange. Uh, I object to in the, um, in the insinuation of your remark is that we wouldn't know these things, you and I, we don't know each other, but that you and I couldn't be relied upon to tell a wrong action from a right one or a moral action from an immoral one without supernatural so his, his thing is that we wouldn't, we wouldn't know what was right and wrong if God didn't reveal that to us. I have no idea what makes you think that there's anything to that proposition. Or why you'd want people to be so abject and so contemptible that without being told this by witch doctors or instructed uh, by, by the heavens uh, or by earthquakes or fires or floods, they wouldn't be able to derive it from their own experience of human solidarity, which is certainly how I found it out. Which requires no underpinning from priests, rabbis, or monks. You look like someone who must get in the last word. Uh, <laughs> well, 
<laughs> I think the, um, the argument about morality is not the fact that we couldn't be good without God. But think about it this way. If moral rules are universal, then that is something very odd. Because if we are evolved primates, driven by an impulse to survive and reproduce, it is conceivable that one group or another might have, through some set of accidents, come up with a set of rules that cut in the other direction. Think about the essence of morality. It is to militate against self-interest. If morality were congruent with self-interest, we wouldn't need it. Nobody needs to tell you to go out and make money. There's a natural drive telling you to do that. No one has to tell you to be powerful, to seek what you want. Morality is the voice that tells you against what you want to do. You're walking on the riverbank, you hear, help, 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 I'm drowning. You're not a very good swimmer. Your natural instinct is to keep going. That guy is nothing to you. It's not your brother, it's not your wife, it's a stranger. But the little voice in your head turns on and says, you should try to help. At least put out a stick. Now what I ask is, where does this voice that has no Darwinian explanation whatsoever, call it the voice of pure altruism. It cannot be explained by reciprocal advantage or genetic kinship or any other of the elaborate theories. Animals do it. Animals do it. Well, if animals do it, that's interesting in its own right, but it doesn't mean that there's a Darwinian explanation that's been given. You've simply extended the problem further. Okay, so we see it here with Dinesh D'Souza. Now, let's go to this debate with William Lane Craig. Now, I didn't get the chance, because I out-talked myself, and I'm sorry for it, to get to the moral dimension. Um, and I'm interested that the word objective morality is the one that Dr. Craig chooses. Usually arguments about morality are whether morality is, so to say, absolute, or whether it's relative. Um, as to objectivity, I think it's a very good compromise word, by the way, and I'm very happy to, to accept it. But the problem with, um, with morality is this, in respect of religion. You can't prove that anyone behaves any better if they refer this problem upward to a supreme dictator of a celestial kind. Not the argument. Here is Craig's response. Okay, well, let's go to the moral argument. It seems to me there that you've misunderstood the argument in that we're looking for an objective foundation for the moral values and duties that we want, we both, I think, want to affirm. It's not a matter of whether or not we can know what is right and wrong, or that we need God to tell us what is right and wrong. It's rather that we need to have some sort of an objective foundation for right and wrong. Wouldn't you agree on your view, it's simply the socio-biological spin-offs of the evolutionary process? Okay, now let's go to this discussion with Douglas Wilson actually here um, doesn't quite fit the screen, but you'll see uh, that we have a questioner. And now I, Douglas Wilson doesn't respond here, but if you'll watch the movie Collision that they did together, it's free on YouTube, I think, you'll see, you'll see this same thing play out again and again and again. Hitchens is corrected on it, and yet he makes the same mistake again. First off is this. When people say without Christianity, we'd have no morality. We wouldn't know what was right, what was wrong. I do point out that um, the idea that you should love your neighbor, not as yourself necessarily, because that's rather strenuous. In fact, it's extreme and it's impossible and rather sinister. But love them, or at least to the extent of not doing anything to them, you wouldn't want done to yourself. 
is certainly in the Analects of Confucius as a thought. Okay, so he goes on about that, but again, he's misunderstood what the moral argument, as typically brought, has to say. Here's another debate with Frank Turek. Shame. I mean, after all, so in my submission are our morals and ethics man-made. It's common to us, as a matter of human solidarity, to know, without being told by revelation from Mount Sinai, a location that's never been discovered, by the way, that uh, a, a, a group of primates that thought that murder, theft, and perjury were okay would not evolve very far or live or survive very long. It just wouldn't happen. We have a duty to each other, um, and we better understand it or die. That's, there is no society that hasn't made or drawn this conclusion. Societies that fail to that practice things like cannibalism and incest literally do die out. They don't survive. They don't adapt. They don't evolve. They don't make it. Um, again, no uh, mystery, but to say that without God we wouldn't know and that without God any evil we did would be thinkable is the... Okay, so he's misunderstood it again. Let's hear this from the cross-examination time of that same debate. Uh, you mentioned that um, you have all these moral issues with Christianity. Uh, where do you get your morality from if we're just molecules in motion? What is morality? Who says we're just molecules in motion? You're a materialist. What else could you be? We're fairly highly evolved primates who have a need, an innate need, for and recognition of human solidarity. You can call that morals if you wish. I think I would. It's only uh, good people, but a lot of people, they say born in the, made in the image of God, are born as psychopaths and sociopaths. They don't feel... Now that's approaching a response, but remember, he's misunderstood the argument, and here he gets the chance. Frank Turek gets the chance to correct this with this questioner from the audience. You have to give it some welly. In the question and answer part, you ask, um, where do your morals come from uh, if you don't believe in Christianity? Now, and the question was, he asked, did I ask Christopher during the Q&A, where do your morals come if you don't believe in Christianity? I don't think you have to believe in Christianity to know right from wrong. I think people from the dawn of time have known right from wrong. It's called the moral law written on their hearts, even from a biblical perspective. Because before there was any Bible, uh, God wipes out the entire generation of Noah. They didn't have a Bible, so you don't need the Bible to know right from wrong. It might help you on certain specific areas, but general right and wrong is known because it's written on your heart, which is a revelation from God. How convenient. That's the kind of God we have, Christopher, yes. Amen. So uh, you see again and again, and I could string together more videos. It goes on and on. I'm not the first to notice this. Um, but again and again and again, Hitchens speaks about the Christian apologists' understanding of morality that we bring in these, these arguments that we bring in these debates with, uh, he understands it as, without God, we wouldn't know what was right or wrong, or uh, Christians are more moral. You can't, we don't see Christians more moral than atheists or something like that. That is not the argument. And we saw D'Souza, we saw Craig, we saw Turek correct this idea. No, what we're saying is you don't have a foundation for it. You don't have a way to say it's objective. You don't have an explanation. And here's the thing. If Hitchens makes the same mistake again and again and again and again and again, when he's been corrected on it, I only see one of three possibilities. Either Hitchens is unintelligent and he doesn't understand what's being said, or he just 
forgets that he's been corrected on this, or he intentionally doesn't respond to the strongest form of this argument when he approaches it the next time. Now, I think enough of him that I will not presume that he's being dishonest like that. And I know enough of his intellect to know that I cannot say that he doesn't understand what's being said. So out of a position of promoting the principle of charity with him, presuming the best about him, I'm going to presume that he simply forgets again and again and again. But that is a fascinating thing to me. It truly is a fascinating thing. At this point, what we're going to do is go back to the second part. And we're almost done here, I think. You know better than me whether we're almost done. But I'm going to pick up here with Hitchens' rebuttal because he promised us in this initial debate that we were discussing, he promised us that we were going to talk about this issue of uh, the design argument and respond more straightforwardly to some of these arguments. And it's fair. It's his rebuttal period where he would do that. So we're going we're gonna to see if that happens now. Well, I think I, I'll just invite uh, Dr. Shorich to do the following and make available to us in, on a sheet of paper, which I'm sure he has, the thesaurus of quotations that he's found from this and that scientist and physicist and natural scientist and so forth. And you will find when you read them, when you look at them, I was writing them down as you went through them, all of these are statements of uncertainty, all of them. They're statements of all we know is how little we know. That's been, for many years, my definition of an educated person, someone who knows enough to know how ignorant they are. Okay, so uh, one thing that I want us to do as we move through the rest of this is I want us to take a look at how many things that are kind of big things that Hitchens claims that he knows, because he's telling us here that an educated person is someone who realizes how little they know. Um, this is kind of to chide uh, Turek about making these grand claims about big uh, metaphysical things that uh, even the physicists don't know about, right? So we're, we're going we're gonna to see how many things Hitchens, who's just said that to us, claims to know, um, either uh, on his own experience or on the basis of authority or whatever. Uh, but I think you'll be amazed that the man who just made that statement makes some of the most bombastic claims about the nature of reality. Let's continue. Uh, it actually is the only, it's not my own original definition, it comes from the Greek, but uh, it's the only definition that works. And no one working, uh, toiling in the field of uh, science uh, could possibly say anything less or more of themselves, especially at a time like this. But there you have it right away. The theistic and the deistic explanation has to be based on a certainty that there is a supervising and, if you want to be a theist, a caring and intervening creator who manages these matters. And okay, first of all, um, I want to say again that uh, I've, I've said many times that certainty, uh, Cartesian certainty about things is useless. Cartesian certainty is the level of certainty where you, you, like you know your own existence. So um, Descartes' uh, cogito ergo sum, that I think, therefore I am. He thought that uh, that's the one thing he could know without the possibility of doubting. This is what's known as Cartesian certainty. And so uh, do Christians have that level of certainty about God's existence? Well, uh, some claim to, but even Frank Turek, who he's debating here, has said on other occasions, 
that he doesn't claim to have that level of certainty, if I understand him correctly. And, um, and many of us don't claim to have that level of certainty. Now, we claim to have the colloquial definition of certainty. Uh, I go into this in more detail in my Richard Carrier response video, so you might go and uh, check that out. Secondly, I'd also like to say that you see again here something that still lives on with uh, atheists today, and particularly YouTube atheists, and that is the idea that science is the arbiter. Now, he doesn't say this, but it's almost like, a given that science is uh, the arbiter of truth here or something, because um, he says, you know, so, no scientist would say anything like this. Science can't tell us these things. Science doesn't even get, well, but a theist can, a religious person can. Well, uh, you can say a theist or you can say, yeah, someone who not only takes dogmatically science to be the only way to get to knowledge, but um, also philosophy, also history and logic and things like that. So, um, and even experience, and not all arguments from experience or ideas about experience are as silly as atheists sometimes make them out to be. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if you if you include all the ways that humans gather knowledge, including the ones on which the idea that science is the best way to get knowledge rests upon, which is philosophy and things like that, then yeah, we believe that you can get to things that natural scientists alone cannot get to. Uh, because it's not the purview of their field. This is a dogmatic position that atheists really would do themselves a, a, a great service to get rid of this idea that science is the only way to get to truth. And I say that respectfully. I, 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 those of you out there who are atheists, I love you. I care about you. And um, I think that many of you are very bright thinkers, but this thing has to go. Um, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit uh, dogmatic and, dare I say, religious. I'm not saying what my co-host has said before, that science matches a lot of the, uh, a lot of the things that religion uh, is supposed to match. But I will say this, it's almost like a religious dogmatism to science. Now, that said, someone recently told me uh, or asked me, said, well, why do you denigrate science? I, I don't denigrate science. I, I think science is fantastic. I love science. I also love philosophy and logic and history and all these kind of things. It's just that I don't dogmatically stick to any one. Um, I, I think we should be open to others. Well, let's continue. And there hasn't been a single sentence so far from Dr. Chorik uh, in support of that uh, proposition. Um, let me give you an example. Um, if you do the event horizon of uh, Stephen Hawking that I just mentioned. Um, I'll take a cosmological one to begin with. The event horizon is the lip of the black hole. It's, it's the... Suppose you could travel towards a black hole and see it, and see the lip of it, and notice it before you went in and over and down. That's what's known as the event horizon to physicists. Hawking had a gravely ill colleague in Cambridge who said if he knew he was definitely going to die, that's the way he'd like to go, be falling into the event horizon lip of the black hole because in theory you'd be able to see the past and the future and time except you wouldn't have quite enough time to do so <laughs> but there would be a grand way to check out if you were a physicist um, you know there's a great there's a great moment in that uh, Douglas Wilson debate with Christopher Hitchens that I played a clip from a moment ago where uh, they're talking about this very issue and uh, the ability to see past present future and all these things all at once and uh, 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 Douglas Wilson says something like, and you guys have a problem with the Trinity because you think, you know, you try drawing that out on a board, this past, present, future, seeing it all at once. And Hitchens says something like, yeah, you can't do that with the Trinity. You can't, in other words, you can't draw the Trinity on a board either. And, uh, and Do Douglas Wilson says, sure you can. Draw a triangle and put a circle around it. And Hitchens even says something like, 
Oh, very good. That's pretty good. You know, right, because it is as simple as that. Not that the concept is as simple to understand as that. It's mysterious. But the idea that three distinct points make one triangle and the Godhead is three persons who uh, share the essence of God uh, is not that difficult to illustrate. Um, so, but anyway, it's just a funny moment from that debate. That you really ought to go watch that movie Collision with Douglas Wilson and Christopher Hitchens. Turn away from this, says the, turn away from that. These incredible, majestic, awe-inspiring thoughts say the theist. Think about the burning bush instead. Think about the trivial miracles witnessed by sheep herding uh, peasants in Bronze Age Palestine. And think about yeah, so a couple of things about this. You understand what he's saying. He's saying uh, the religious person would have you to look away from the obviously magisterial, amazing, wondrous things in the universe and focus rather on things that seem so pale in comparison, like a burning bush or something like that. Um, well, a, a few things to say about this. First of all, if, if you think that that's unimpressive in light of the universe, then why balk at it? Okay, why balk at it as though it's impossible? Uh, but secondly, um, I would say God, God could not uh, or, or would not, uh, he could, I guess, but he would not waste time when he's trying to teach people theological truths um, in, you know, in Bronze Age Palestine, trying to reveal to them these things about the universe that they couldn't possibly understand. Again, this goes back to the Richard Carrier video where we played some comments from Michael Heiser uh, about why didn't God give them a full cosmology of the universe? Because the person would be left saying, doesn't this God understand who I am? Doesn't he know my background and that this is so far over my head? There's no way I could possibly understand what he's talking about. No, God communicates with people where they are and uh, in the way that makes sense to them. Thirdly, I'd like to say that the fact that the burning bush idea is amazing or the parting of the Red Sea is amazing or the resurrection of the dead is amazing and wondrous and, and, um, and powerful and glorifies God, uh, that doesn't mean that we don't also, we religious people, don't also see that in the universe itself. We're not saying look away from the beauty of the cosmos. We say the heavens declare the glory of God. Of course we think all of that is incredible. We think our own existence is incredible. I mean, given your beliefs about evolution and everything else, just take a moment sometime and look in the mirror and consider the fact that you have a conscious experience. Uh, every part of your body is appropriate to its environment. Now, you might say, like Hitchens does, that there are things about it that, are, that don't seem um, as well designed as they could be. Fine. We, we can disagree about that. And we also grant that we live in a fallen world where um, we have a design that is degrading. But the fact about it is, you, you, I think you have to deal with whoever you are. And, and you can say whatever you want in the comment sections. And you can roll your eyes now. But in the quiet of your own mind, you need to give some time to considering the fact that it's all a little too suspicious. It, it, it just It's a little too purposeful. However you think it got to this point, that it got to this point. And that you're able to assess this and roll these things around in your mind and that you have a mind. And that, I mean, it's just all, it's, it's just, it's just, it, it's amazing. But yeah, we think that the universe is wondrous, amazing, and declares the glory of God. And we think that miracles like the ones that he thinks are so unimpressive um, also declare the glory of God just to a different people in a different time. What's, what's the big deal? Think about the debt that they, they feel that we should incur for their sins. It was stated by Dr. Turek that the sins of these people 
the transgressions of these people and the debt they owe their Creator bind all of us as sinners. What a shame we're not perfect. What a shame there's nothing we can do about it. What a shame we're created already in prison and have to earn our emancipation. I tell you again, this is servility to the ultimate power. Now, there we Okay, now, first of all, uh, Christians do not believe that you have to earn uh, your status or your salvation or anything like that. This goes back to his misunderstanding about morality and just a real whacked up understanding of Christian views of anthropology and what we think about ourselves and morality and all those kinds of things. What we say is that we can't earn it. And so we turn to the sacrifice that uh, Jesus made for us on the cross because um, it's by his righteousness that we are able to uh, be made whole and so um, and be accepted. So th this idea is is off. Um, but even granting all of the theological misunderstandings that come with a statement like this, again, what's Hitchens' argument against it? Can you think of it? Can you point it out for me? I don't think there is one except mockery which I think is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful tool that the new atheists and the YouTube atheists, the new new atheists have uh, at their disposal is to just mock religion. It's almost like some of them have given up trying to deal with the arguments and instead have just decided, and some still do, you know, you got your cosmic skeptics, your rationality rules, people like that. But um, it's like some of these YouTube atheists have just given up trying to, and just gone with mockery because frankly, that's pretty effective. It's pretty effective. Um, there are guys who are open and honest about that uh, online. So, um, you know, but there is no argument here. Hitchens is just telling us he doesn't like it, that, that, he, that he doesn't like the idea. Uh, it's why he's an anti-theist and not just an atheist. Okay, fine. You don't have to like it. But again, I want to point out the illogical position of that, that there are many things in the world that we all agree are very real that we don't like. Okay? That doesn't mean they're not real. There's no argument here. This is vacuous. We, there are people in this audience much better equipped than I to say that there is so far nothing in our natural world to move away from the cosmological. There is nothing in our natural world, the globe we live on, that cannot be explained by random mutation combined with evolution by natural selection. Okay, now here's big major claim number one. Now, I remember he said a moment ago that the mark of an uh, intelligent person or an educated person is that they realize how little they do know. Now, he has made this claim. I've written it down. There is nothing in our natural world that cannot be explained by random mutation combined with evolution and natural selection. Understand he is claiming to know something about literally everything in our natural world. Do you see the irony in this, that the man who just told us, a man for whom I had, have great respect, but he has just told us that the mark of an educated person is to accept how little they know and, or how much they don't know. And now he has made a claim about everything in the physical universe. Unbelievable. Nothing works without that assumption. Okay, big claim number two, nothing works without that assumption. Really, Hitchens, you've studied everything there is to know about physics and about the nature of the cosmos and about uh, you know, geology and, and uh, you know, anthropology and um, you've studied everything about evolution and, and you're not just taking people's words for it. Really, you've studied everything there is to know to come up with a statement that nothing works without that assumption. 
This is one of the biggest claims that a person can make. Everything works with it. There are lots of things that remain to be decided, but it's not a theory, or not just one. It does work, it is operational, it doesn't require a prime mover. It doesn't require a prime mover, by which he means God. It doesn't require God. Now he's made claims, uh, not just about the, well, he's made claims about the physical universe, but now he's made claims about metaphysics. He's claimed that there is no God, or at least that the one's not necessary for things to happen the way they do in the physical cosmos. This is way beyond what most of our atheists today will say. Most of our atheists will say, I don't know at this point. I see no evidence of it, but I don't know. He's not saying, I see no evidence of it. He's saying the, uh, that there is, one isn't necessary for the things that we see. That is a big claim. These are three massive claims that cover everything in reality or that might be in reality. Coming from the man who told us that it's the mark of an educated individual to recognize how much they don't know. Occam's razor says we should dispose of unnecessary, needless assumptions. That's what I propose we do in this case. Like I'll put it another way. How long would you say Homo sapiens has been on the planet? Um, Fra uh, Francis, um, not Crick, um, excuse me, the author of the human, the supervisor of the Human Genome uh, Project. Collins. Collins, my new best friend and uh, occasional debating enemy thinks, well, not more than half a million years. Richard Dawkins thinks it could be as much as three quarters of a million. I, I, I can sink the number, actually, if you like. We know that the, the, we left, the species left Africa about 75,000 years ago. Okay, we know the species left Africa about 75,000 years ago. You know that? Now, I, it's one thing to say the evidence seems to indicate or the guys who study this seem, seem, you know, they tell me and it seems reasonable, which he kind of indirectly did by citing a couple of different guys. But now he's claiming a claim to knowledge for himself. We know the species left Africa 75,000 years ago. You say, Braxton, are you saying they didn't? You know, that's not the point. You know, about some of these things, perhaps he's right. But he's making big knowledge claims about things that he wasn't there for, that we don't have conclusive demonstrable evidence like visual certainty on and cannot have. Um, I'm going to have people in the comments tell me, no, well, look, this evidence proves this or that or whatever. Okay, but you don't have visual certainty about this. And yet he, he's claiming, making a knowledge claim. Now, I actually think it's fine to make knowledge claims like this, but I'm going with, I'm, I'm listening to the guy who just told me that the mark of an educated person is not to make such claims. Having probably shrunk down to about two or 3,000 people, as a result of a terrible climatic disturbance, probably from Indonesia, probably from a predecessor of Krakatoa, which meant that we were this close to joining the 99.8% of all species ever living on the surface of this planet who became extinct. He knows that 99.8% of all living species are now extinct. Some design, by the way. Profuse creation of millions now, we've talked about this a little bit again, but remember the some design thing. We've already covered it a little bit, but some design, right? Um, well, you know, uh, if, if it's poorly designed or you think the design is going downhill, that doesn't mean that it's not designed. And perhaps uh, specific religions, um, specifically since you're talking with a Christian on stage, Christians have eschatological answers to that that, again, came before we had that scientific understanding uh, that actually makes sense of it, that it makes sense to say that the universe is 
um, heading for a state of, of destruction or, or uh, heat death or chaos or whatever you want to say, because Christianity already said long before it knew that, uh, long before the people uh, that are a part of the Christian movement knew that, it was already revealed that there would be um, eschatological answers to those things. Millions and millions and millions of life forms all to be wiped out with not even anyone left to testify to their previous existence. We nearly joined that lot. Managed to get out of it just in time. Let's call it, I don't want Francis's million or um, half a million or Richard Dawkins' 75,000, whichever way around. Just give me me that amount of time. Suppose we've only been around for 75,000 years. Monotheism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, shows up, what, four or 5,000 years ago at the most. So if you give me my most microscopically small assumption of human existence, for at least 70,000 years, heaven watches as the human species is born, dies, usually of its teeth, usually at about 20, usually its infants having about a 9, 10, 2% chance of living beyond. You can, I don't have to draw your picture. Watches this with indifference. Thousands and thousands of generations, miserable, illiterate, starving, hungry, uh, to say nothing of the wars they'll fight with each other. Okay, now notice something. He claims to know that if God exists, he watches with indifference, all these things. In order to substantiate a claim like that, Hitchens would have to actually know the individual experiences, all of them, of every single human being who has ever lived. Now you think, well, you're just, you're just, you're now you're mocking it. Now you're making fun of it. No, 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 I'm not. I'm taking him seriously out of respect for the man and for the positions that he taught. I'm taking him seriously. In order for him to make a statement like that, he would have to know the experiences of every single individual who has ever lived to say that God watched with pitiless indifference. Because how does he know? And in fact. Most of those people don't claim that God watched with pitiless indifference. But Hitchens claims to know better than they do what happened in their own lives. So um, now let's give, him, let's give him the principle of charity here. Let's, let's do the most charitable reading of what he's saying here. He is casually giving uh, or referencing obliquely uh, an argument from evil. He doesn't specify for us a logical argument from evil or an evidential argument from evil. That is to say, a, 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 like something like a deductive argument or a probabilistic argument. He doesn't specify which, but uh, he does mention all the tragedy, all the difficulty, all of the problems. And we can respond to arguments from evil. I'll just give you my personal theodicy, is that God wanted to create a people who had the freedom to, uh, who had libertarian freedom, real freedom to make real choices, because with that you get the ability to give of yourself for the good of another, real sacrifice, and thereby real love. It makes sense of the tree of the garden, however you understand that story, that there were two trees in the midst of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They needed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there because they needed the opportunity to disobey because without something to willingly sacrifice in obedience to God, you couldn't get real love for God because you need to have the ability to give of yourself for the wants of someone else. And so you had that freedom to choose, to love God or to love self. Ultimately, mankind chose to love self. And we see throughout human history examples of people choosing either 
uh, freely to love or and to obey or to choose themselves and to disobey. We see that throughout human history. And in fact, God does step in quite frequently. And when he steps in, uh, often he uh, alleviates some evils. We don't know how evil the world would be if God didn't step in as he does to, um, to, to providentially uh, resolve and, and protect against some of these evils. Why does he allow the specific evils that he does? I don't know. And you know what? To say that there can't be a reason, as someone like William Rowe might hint at, or Christopher Hitchens might hint at, um, is to claim to be God himself, because you claim to be able to see the butterfly effect of every event, to know that there isn't some overriding good that may come out of it. But ultimately, this free will answer, this free will theodicy, as it's often called, I think resolves this problem, and even resolves natural disasters, as I've talked about many times. But the bottom line is, to substantiate the claims that Hitchens is making, he would have to literally know everything. And how ironic that is from the man who began this speech, telling us that an educated person, a mark of an educated person, is someone who realizes how little they know. To say nothing of the cruelties they will inflict, as well as the ones they will suffer just from existence. And only uh, three or four, perhaps 5,000 years ago, heaven decides this is enough of that. It's time for an intervention. And the best way to do it would be in the most primitive part of the Middle East. Not in China, where people can read and have looked at telescopes. No, in the most primitive part of the Middle East, basically by offering human sacrifice to them. This is a doctrine that cannot be believed by... Now, actually, actually, there's good reason to believe that this was a great time for uh, this message to come and uh, to be able to spread throughout the empire. And looking back, it's really amazing because looking back at what actually did happen, <laughs> such that uh, it did ultimately become uh, the dominant religion in Rome and the Roman Empire, in fact, and that from there it spread throughout the world so that today, 2,000 plus years later, we are we are having a response video to someone who is attacking Christianity to try to convince a predominantly Christian professing nation not to believe anymore. In other words, it worked and it worked beautifully. How are you going to Monday morning quarterback this situation that that accomplished exactly what was intended? I mean, it's like it's I mean, think about that. It did work. God did this in a way no one could have planned. In fact, let, let me turn around what Hitchens is saying here. Um, if you had tried to map it out, if you had tried to plan it, or, or I, or Hitchens, or anyone of any intellect, tried to plan for a religion to begin and have the explosive dominating power that it had to be able to be spread throughout the entire world, so that this many years later, we're still talking about it. You could not have masterminded that. You could not have masterminded it. You couldn't have planned it. And yet it happened in precisely the way that it needed to in order for this to happen. And the only way that Islam was able to mimic those effects 600 years after the fact was to play off of that already existing currency of Judaism and Christianity. And then, of course, for those of us who are believers and don't have a problem and don't roll our eyes at the existence of the supernatural because it's a system-dependent belief, they had help. 
But you could not have masterminded this. You know who could have done it providentially? God. It's just not. It's, it's just, it, it, to, to hear the man say this, it's like he isn't hearing himself talk. But notice again, there is no argument here. I've tried to give him arguments as we've gone along, like the argument from evil and articulate what he might be saying, but he's giving us nothing except, I don't like this. And as he's doing so, stumbling over criticisms of his own position that I don't think he even recognizes. By anyone who's studied anything scientific, anything historical, anything archaeological, anything paleological, anything biological, not, can't be believed by anyone, can't be only believed by someone who wants to be a plaything and a slave of a pitiless totalitarian power. How? Now, notice something here. He's saying this cannot be believed by anyone who has studied these uh, fields of study that he mentions. Fascinating, then, that so many do. Fascinating that you have debated some of the brightest minds in those areas who do exactly believe that. And, and the ones that you debated, not in spite of the evidence because it's just their religious belief that they hold in tension with their you know, understanding of science or history or philosophy. No, precisely because of science and history and philosophy, they hold these things. Fascinating. But yet, Hitchens, the one who says that the mark of an educated person is how, understanding how little they know, claims that no one who has those things can believe these things. And then on the, the heels of that, the only people who can believe these things are those who wish to be playthings. Now, here he tips his hand that we believe that, that he doesn't believe or that we, we, we should, or that it's a relevant thing to consider whether we like something in order to believe it. The only people who believe this are the people that want to be playthings and be in servitude. Okay, that's like saying the only people that believe in cancer are the kind of people that want to live in a world where cancer is killing people. No? The people that believe this believe this because they think it's the truth about the nature of reality that there's a thing called cancer that kills people. And in the same way, the people that believe in Christianity, at least many of them, believe in Christianity because they believe it's the truth about the nature of reality. But this gives us a bit of Hitchens psychology. And I don't psychologize people, but he's, he's giving it to us that we should believe or that uh, the people that believe this want to be servants. And I don't want to be a servant. I don't want to be a plaything, so I'm not going to believe this. And he has, in fact, said that he doesn't think it's true, but that he, he's glad it's not true and he doesn't want it to be true. Yet the same man has um, the gall to say that we're just guilty of wish fulfillment. Um, again, I, I want to say anytime I sound like I'm being too straightforward, I love Hitchens. I love him. Um, it's heartbreaking what happened in his life. And yet, and I don't say that with any level of condescension, but on the basis of what I know. And by the way, I don't claim to have the corner on the truth. I claim that I am as much a sinner as Hitchens was. I claim that I am as broken as all humanity is, and I don't have your answers. I could get something wrong in these response videos. You know who has your answers? Jesus does. And if I give, if anything falls from my lips that is helpful to you, it's only because of what God's done in my life. I, I realize that I don't have the, the corner on the truth. I, I wasn't able to discover it and find it for myself. But I know the one who has the truth, and I want you to know him too. And in that sense, it is heartbreaking what has happened to Hitchens. But he, he gives us here a bit of his own psychology. Let's move on. How glad we should be that the evidence for this ghastly entity is nil. Good. Thanks. 
He ends with the typical chest thump. And, um, you know, this is what I, this is what I hear often. I, I hear it. I, I try to be really kind to the people that comment on my videos because I do appreciate that anyone thinks enough of me, even if they are um, being vitriolic in their responses. It still flatters me that you think enough to comment. It flatters me that you think enough to even click the thumbs down button. I mean that. And, and sometimes I am too straightforward in the comments, and for that I do apologize when that happens. But um, I hear so often from the people in those comments just chest-thumping statements like that or mockery. And, um, you know, it, it, it reminds me of Hitchens. But it reminds me of the worst things about the work of Christopher Hitchens. Unfortunately, some of those worst things, the mockery and the chest thumping, are also some of the most convincing. So I understand uh, why you do it, but that doesn't mean that I think it's the right way to go about this or the way that level-headed, reasonable people would go about this. So we've come to the end, and um, Christopher Hitchens was an incredible man with an incredible uh, history and, and career. I wish he were still here. I wish that he had come to Christ. Um, I appreciate some of his political stances, perhaps. Um, we had a student at Trinity Seminary who, whose dissertation was on the thinking of Christopher Hitchens, and it was actually uh, published by Whitfin Stock, and uh, you know, major publisher, and um, and he could say more about that than I could. But uh, in the end, I think we could still learn from him. But I think we should learn some things about the power of rhetoric that we can all learn from and use. Because rhetoric is not a bad thing. Mere rhetoric is a bad thing. And unfortunately, what we got from Hitchens, if I have to summarize what I know of him after reading his works and watching all of his debates, is we have a man who was an incredible pulpiteer, an incredible stage man, an incredible front man for atheism, a man who knew how to speak well, um, and who, who knew how to give you the impression that he was well aware of, and if he wanted to, could debunk all of the claims of the Christians by giving you the rhetoric and sprinkling in historical facts and the names of scientists and little anecdotes about their lives to give you the impression that he could easily do it. But did we get that? Never. Never. Well, um, with that, I'd like to invite you that if you believe in what we're doing here to uh, visit us at patreon.com slash Trinity Radio or click the link in the top right-hand corner of this screen. And um, with that, I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.